We're in our series on the book of Genesis. We're in our fourth sermon in this series. And this one I've entitled, The God Who Makes. And we're going to look at creation from a big picture perspective. Uh, so uh, rather than read this as a long uh, passage, uh, most of chapter one and about half of chapter two, rather than read the whole thing, I'm going to sort of hit the highlights as we go through. So please follow along Genesis chapter one. We're going to start at verse three, but we're going to skip to some of the uh, places that we're going to cover in the sermon. But please listen carefully as this is the word of God. Starting with Genesis 1, 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. I looked that up verse up in the Hebrew. It says, be light was light. I thought that was cool. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. Verse 14, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Jumping down to Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word and making us your people. Father God, thanks for a chance to come together to study this morning, to learn, to pray, to hear, to repent, to be restored, to be loved, to be embraced, to get a fresh start this week, Lord. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you do. Thank you for creating this earth as a gift for us, and thank you for creating us with life to enjoy what you've given us. 
Lord, as we study this passage, we ask that you would give each of us just what you know that we need. God, we know everything you do is good, and we know you're in a wonderful rescue plan for saving us from ourselves. Thank you this great day to celebrate your gifts of grace to us. Help us to know you more this morning. Cause us to have a deeper and greater faith in you. For this, we need your grace. And as your spirit was there in the beginning, bringing order to creation, we ask you to come and bring order to our lives. Do this for each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Genesis, and we've come to another part that is simple and easy and has no controversy. One of the things we struggle with in understanding the book of Genesis is that Genesis was given in the context of Exodus. Let me say that again. Genesis was given in the context of Exodus. Who led Exodus, or who led Israel during the Exodus? Moses. That's right. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis? Moses. First five books of the Bible were written by Moses as inspired by the Holy Spirit. When? When Israel was wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And even though God had blessed Joseph's family in Egypt by greatly multiplying their numbers, Israel has now experienced more than four centuries of slavery and oppression. The sands of Egypt contained countless Hebrew graves. And undoubtedly, they retained some stories about God and his dealings with the patriarchs, but they had no written revelation. And it's quite possible, it's even probable, that all Israel possessed before the events of the Exodus are some uh, dimly remembered tales and traditions about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. You think back in your own history, how many of us know what happened in our family history 400 years ago? Probably not too many. We may have read back or done a genealogy trace, and we know the person's name and where they lived and maybe what they did, but that's probably it at best, which tells us 400 years from now. How many people of our descendants are going to remember exactly who we were and what we did and what we were like and what we said? And that's the situation we have here. It's been 400 years. And now they've gone through the events of, of the Exodus. They've survived the plagues against Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Exodus of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And I, I'm thinking they must have some pretty big questions to ask. Who is this God? And how could he defeat the mighty Pharaoh? And how could the God of a no-count slave people so humiliate the gods of Egypt? And why us? And what claim does this God have on us? And it's into this context that Moses has given these books. The Israel that God rescued from Egypt through the Red Sea and led into the wilderness of Sinai was the first audience of the book of Genesis. They were the first people to hear or read the book of Genesis as the written revelation of God. And as best as we can tell at that time, they didn't know that much about God or their own history. And so while the creation of the world, 
the fall into sin of our first parents, the stories of Noah, the flood, the Tower of Babel, and the patriarchs all took place before the Exodus. The written revelation of these events takes place after the Exodus, while Israel's wandering in the desert. And what's more, uh, it wasn't just that uh, the awesome display of power and grand rescue called for an explanation. Presumably, uh, the redeemed are now some way obligated to the Redeemer. The rescue hints at a relationship. And so Israel would be asking for the story that led to this event, wanting to understand uh, who and why God came to rescue them. But also, you know, who he was. What else has he done? And you have to understand that, uh, that through Moses, God is telling his people who he is. He's, in a sense, reintroducing himself to Israel in the creation story. And in so doing, he's telling them in clear and unmistakable terms how he, in spite of the might of Egypt and their gods, was able to deliver Israel from slavery. And so Moses, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells them the story. And like all good stories, he starts at the very beginning. A very good place to start. He starts with God and creation, two of the biggest and most controversial topics in human history. Nearly 40 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book called Genesis in Space and Time. It was subtitled The Flow of Biblical History. And he argues one of the ways to minimize the endless debates uh, that cloud discussion of Genesis is by asking what is the least that Genesis 1 and the following chapters must be saying for the Bible to make any sense. And what Francis Schaeffer was trying to get at was beyond all the debates, there is some minimum these chapters are saying for the Bible to have any coherence or logic. And that's what we're looking at uh, probably for through the rest of this month and into uh, March. And today we're going to look at what some uh, of uh, what Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about creation. And we're going to deal with the issue of creation and how God created and made and filled the heavens and the earth. Now, as I got into this, I realized this could be a 25-hour sermon. I'll cut it down a little from that. But really, this probably could have been three, four sermons easy to cover everything that's in here. So I'm going to ask you to pay close attention and listen quickly because we're going to move through a tremendous amount of material today. I'm really enjoying uh, studying all this. Hopefully it will translate into some uh, teachable concepts for all of us. Uh, Before we start, let me say I'm not going to get into all the differing views and controversies on creation. Those controversies, for the most part, revolve around answering two questions. How long are the days And how old is the earth? Now, for those keeping score, there are six predominant views amongst Christians. First one's called the 24-hour view of creation. A young earth uh, view is sort of the historic uh, position of the church. Uh, The second one is the day-age view, uh, which essentially says, because the Hebrew word day Uh, is used many different ways, that the days were actually ages, long periods of time. 
The third one is the literary framework view. It says Genesis 1 and 2 is written in a literary fashion. It's not trying to tell us about science or material things. We have to read it in a sense as the uh, prose and poetry uh, that it was written in. There's some truth to that. The fourth one is, is relatively new, and it's called historic creationism. I don't know why we put the historic on a new theory, but uh, they have, uh, gaining a lot of prominence. Essentially that it's an old earth with a young humanity with 24-hour days. Uh, there is the gap theory of creation, which predominantly comes out of dispensationalism. And then finally, there's theistic evolution, which believes in evolution but says God was controlling it all. Now, I think there's some elements of truth in each of the different positions. Presbyterian Church in America would accept the first four views, 24 hours, day, age, literary framework, historic creationism. We generally wouldn't accept the last two. We wouldn't accept the gap theory since it depends on adding things the scripture doesn't say. And we would not accept evolution even if it's dressed in religious clothes. Now, there is a PCA paper. It's pretty long. Uh, on the acceptable views of creation, which you can find online at the PCA Historical Center. And next Sunday... Uh, the good Reverend Rich Coffeen is going to teach a special Sunday school class on all of this and these differing views and uh, where we, we land. Um, and as he is much smarter than I, he's going to make this crystal clear and guide you into all truth. <laughs> so let's dive into the simple and easy subject of the doctrine of creation. Today we're going to take it from a big picture uh, perspective. I'm going to try and not to get lost in all the details. So in order to get a grasp on the big picture, you need to understand first that God is king over all creation. God is king over all creation. That should be the first blank in your outline. See, first, Israel would have heard this powerful declaration that God is the almighty, transcendent creator and sovereign king over all these things. Genesis doesn't begin with an extravagant introduction. There are no claims made of might, authority, intellect, or beauty. God is declared by his actions, and his actions are the revelation and proof of who he is. Now, in the ancient Near East, people groups dealt with each other in terms of covenants. Covenant is a historical relationship between two persons or people groups where the terms are dictated by the stronger or the sovereign party. So the strong nation would form a covenant with a weaker nation, a modern equivalent, not exact, but close would be a treaty. And essentially it would say something like this. We, the strong nation, will protect you, the weak nation, from your enemies. In return, you, the weak nation, will pay us, the strong nation, much honor. And we would like that honor to be paid in gold. <laughs> and in slaves, and in all your best-looking women. And if you break the covenant, we'll kill you, and take your land, and we'll still keep the gold, the slaves, and the best-looking women. There are massive books written about that, and you just got it in like two paragraphs. 
Another version of this covenant would be written between a king and the people of his kingdom. He would provide the protection. They would give honor. And remember, honor is spelled gold, slaves, and women. That's how the ancient Near East worked. Everybody understood that. This is the way of the world. And so what we find in the first five books of the Bible is that God communicates with his people in terms of covenants. This means God communicates with his people in relational terms that they already understand. And since the word covenant appears 286 times in the Old Testament, we can safely assume this is a concept that's already familiar uh, to the readers. And so we see that the relationships that God has with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, are all written as covenants. We see one example of this at the beginning of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Right before Moses reminds them of the Ten Commandments, which he'd already given them back in Exodus chapter 20, he calls all the people together and he says, Deuteronomy 5, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. And why can God communicate with his people in terms of a covenant? Because he's the king. He's sovereign. And how do we know he's the king? How do we know he's sovereign? First and foremost, because he's the creator. In fact, we can detect in the creation story most of the elements of typical ancient Near Eastern covenants. And the first one's the preamble, which introduces the sovereign and all the parties to the covenant relationship. We have that here. God is introduced as the all-powerful sovereign creator, the king over all creation, a kingdom he calls into existence by the sheer power and authority of his word, which is why last week, first we talked about the God who speaks, because without that, you don't understand the God who makes. That leads us to the second point, which is creation is God's kingdom. Creation is God's kingdom. And here we have a statement of obligations. This includes the promises of the sovereign and the responsibilities of the servants. And in Genesis 1, we see that God, by his own sovereign free decision, covenantally binds himself to his creation. It's by the word of God that creation is made, and it's by the word of God that creation continues. We talk about providence, how God sustains the world by the power of his word. If God was to remove that, everything would fly off into chaos. God binds himself to be faithful to his word. And the patterns of day and night, seed time and harvest, mating and giving birth, don't follow impersonal laws, but are the direct command of a personal God who remains ever close. And we see here that God appoints a place and an area of responsibility to each of his creatures. He appoints the sun to govern the day and the moon to rule the night. And we saw that in our responsive reading uh, this morning. God commands the waters to bring forth fish 
and commands the fish to multiply and fill the waters. And he does the same for the sky and the birds and the land and the animals. All parts of God's creation have their own covenantal task. And each creature has a covenantal response to the word of God. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 119, by your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. The universe is created as depicted here in Genesis 1 as a willing and eager servant to the sovereign rule of God. And in the formative sovereign act of creation, God calls all of his new creation into a covenant relationship. Reformed theologian Dr. John Frame, like many Reformed theologians, he's very brilliant and very hard to read. Um, but he writes, all things, plants, animals, and persons are appointed to be covenant servants, to obey God's law, and to be instruments of his gracious purpose. And the lordship of God, by which all creation is called into being, is being powerfully put before Israel in this creation story. Creation proclaims God's authority and power. All things do his bidding. All things answer his command. All things bend to his decree. God not only creates, but also names the creatures that he spoke into being, the day, the night, sun, moon, sea, man. To have the right to assign a name is to exercise the rights of lordship, authority, and possession. And we'll see as he goes in, he delegates some of those rights to man. By naming his creatures, God is declaring his kingly rights over those same creatures. And creation, all of creation, is part of God's kingdom. All creation serves him. Most of creation responds impersonally to the sovereignty of God. There's no personal intentionality, hard word, or moral accountability for the raindrop or the solar system or an oak tree. Their obedience is involuntary, instinctive, and automatic. You know, no raindrop says, you know, on second thought, not falling down today. This cloud I'm in is over Washington, D.C. All that white marble is pretty hard. Not going to risk it. I'll wait till tomorrow when we're over Loudoun County and I can fall in all that nice, soft green space. Doesn't happen. Clouds fill with water, rain comes down. Doesn't get to choose where or when. The rain simply obeys God's law. Psalm 147 says he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. Ecclesiastes 11, uh, 3 says, If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. The tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. But as we go through the story, we see there is one creature that is given personal intentionality and moral accountability, and that's man. Now, the Hebrew word for man is also the name for the first man, Adam. In Hebrew, it would be Ha-Adam. And as the one creature called and empowered to bear the image of God within creation, Adam, the human being, is to mediate God's rule to creation. Adam must respond obediently on behalf of creation to the rule of God. 
And so in contrast to the rain and the tree, the response of man to the sovereign rule of God is both personal and moral. Which brings us to my third point, which is God puts creation under man's care. God puts creation under man's care. See, this is the third element of a covenant, which is the role of the covenant mediator. What's a mediator? Simply put, a mediator is an intermediary between two parties. He's often called an intercessor, uh, which means one who prays, but can also mean one who intervenes. We might simply call him a go-between. And man is to serve as the mediator between God and creation. And why does man have this role? Because man is free. Free to obey. Man is not free to uh, uh, obey or disobey the word of God or he, as he or she pleases because disobedience is never free. It always brings slavery. We're free to respond to God. And our response, unlike the rain and the tree, is not automatic. The responsive freedom of man is also a responsible freedom. And as the representatives of creation, man's response to God affects all other creatures. We first see that God gives this role to man in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the earth and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on what is called the dominion mandate, which is given in these verses, mostly because it's going to be renewed in Genesis 9, and we're going to look at it more closely then. But another uh, Reformed theologian, Dutchman, Gordon Spikeman, says, we are responsible to God and responsible for his other creatures. We're accountable to our maker for his creation. And so man's choices, his obedient and faithful responses, or his disobedient and unfaithful responses towards God, will affect the entire creation order. And we can certainly see that in our world today. Over the centuries, mankind's made a lot of unwise, unfaithful choices with regard to creation, and all of creation, including us, is suffering the consequences. Which suggests the fourth element of a covenant, the declarations of blessings and curses. These covenants all carry blessings for faithfulness to the covenant and curses for unfaithfulness to the covenant. And the promise of blessing for covenant faithfulness and the warning of curses for covenant unfaithfulness. And we get symbols of that right up front. The tree of life in Genesis 2.9 symbolizes the blessing that will come upon man and all of creation so long as man is obedient to the word and will of God. However, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we also see in Genesis 2, simultaneously declares that man is not the ultimate. He is a creature under the authority of the word of God, and it warns of a most serious penalty a curse for covenant unfaithfulness. Now, as you probably know, this didn't work out so well, or at least not as well as it could have for Adam. We'll see that in more detail in Genesis 3. Eventually, the role of mediator, 
out Israel's history is given to the nation of Israel. And with a few really notable exceptions, for the most part, Israel didn't do any better than Adam did. They seemed to specialize in disobedience. Hence, slavery in Egypt. And forgetting God and forgetting their history. And being rescued from bondage in Egypt by the God whose story they no longer knew. Thank God for the arrival of Moses and the writing of the book of Genesis, which contains the history of the people up to the Exodus. And now we see the reintroduction of God to his people, starting with creation. And God reveals his larger purpose, and thus their larger purpose, to these Hebrew slaves in the Sinai wilderness. They're here to take care of creation, to obey the word of God, to model covenant faithfulness to all the nations, and by doing all of those things, to lead people to God. Prophet Isaiah says as much in Isaiah 49, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And the creation story provided the people of Israel, the first audience of Genesis, a full explanation of their identity and calling in relationship to their God, to their world, to all of humanity. And from now on, God is going to regularly remind them of this, that he is their creator and redeemer. We see that in the opening words of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Shall have no other gods before me. Now you would think that the people of Israel would be so amazed and so astounded that God cares about them. He creates a covenant with them in order to have an ongoing relationship with them, that they would respond, they would serve him lovingly and joyfully all the days of their life, right? No, they don't even make it out of the desert. In fact, when Moses is on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, they decide to demonstrate their proficiency at disobedience by immediately breaking the first two commandments. We see that in Exodus 32. The people saw Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. People gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so while Moses is being given the law, they're down here making a golden calf. The last thing they were told before Moses went up the mountain was to be faithful to the covenant, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. God reminded them. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. It was the last thing they were told. Do they obey God's word? Are they faithful to God's covenant? No way. As soon as God finishes giving the law to Moses, we read, this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf 
and I've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If you go on and read there, God says, I'm going to deal with that, and I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. And Moses has to become the uh, mediator and beg God not to destroy the people. And throughout Israel's history, it's more of the same. Occasional faithfulness interrupts the much more common unfaithfulness. If you read through the Old Testament, countless stories of bad kings, corrupt priests, ignored prophets, you start to think these are the stupidest people who ever lived. They just don't get it. They can't seem to remain faithful to the sovereign king of the universe. Even though they regularly gather for worship in unison, say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. No, wait. That's us. We're the ones who say that. I wonder if the Israelites could look in the future and see us and how we live. I wonder if they would think that we're the stupidest people who ever lived. I mean, maybe. Probably not. But maybe sometimes. Rarely, I'm sure. We're the ones who aren't being faithful to the covenant. Maybe we're the ones who disobey the word of God. Maybe the idol factories are in our hearts. Maybe. Just perhaps we need a mediator. You think God knew that? I mean, he's all-knowing, right? That pretty much implies that he knew we would need a mediator. Maybe that's why when Jesus was born, the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Maybe that's why Simeon sang of the baby Jesus at the temple, Luke 2, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, for glory to your people Israel. In that passage, Jesus is given the role that God had earlier given to Israel, the role of mediator, intermediary, intercessor. So that for us and for our salvation, Jesus became the go-between. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul said to King Agrippa in Acts 26, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And maybe that's why he wanted Timothy to know in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. God knew we needed a mediator. And God gave us a mediator. Now there's a blue uh, insert in your bulletin that explains a lot more about that. And I thought it was important enough to add that in for you to, to have. Since we disobeyed the word of God, we needed a mediator who obeyed the word of God perfectly. And since we're the ones who are unfaithful to the covenant, we needed a mediator who would keep the covenant perfectly. Since we're the ones who repeatedly fail to lead God's people back to God, we needed a mediator who would never leave us or forsake us, who would never fail to lead God's people back to God. 
And since we're not doing such a great job at taking care of God's creation, we needed a mediator who would bring us into glory, into the new heavens and the new earth, into the new creation. We're big sinners. We don't often think so because we're also sophisticated sinners. But we have many transgressions. We need a mediator. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. More covenant breakers, we deserve to die in the desert. Our sins demand us. But Romans 5.8 comes to our rescue. But God shows his love uh, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I wrote to you, the members of Potomac Hills, earlier this week. I know you read the weekly events thoroughly every week. That we know the storyline of the Bible goes like this, creation, fall, redemption. And when we think about it, we should realize no creation, no fall. For what would we fall from? And no fall, no redemption. For what would we be redeemed from? Creation serves as the foundation of the entire storyline of the Bible. Pastor Tom Kelly wrote, God exerted some effort to make man. He labored over his creation. He declared it good. When you take time to make something and make it just so, you have a keener appreciation, even love for that one thing. Is it any wonder then, after painstakingly forming man, God would send his son to save his creation? The doctrine of creation should inevitably lead us to the doctrine of of redemption. After all, the Apostle Paul also wrote, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Creation, fall, redemption. You need a mediator. By grace, through faith, in Christ, you have a mediator. It all begins with Genesis. Because Genesis is all about God, and Genesis is all about grace. And may his grace fill us as we study this book of beginnings. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have made all things out of nothing. Grant that we would know you better through the book of Genesis, which is your word. Grant that we would believe it and live by it. And Father, thank you that you sent your Son to be our Savior, our mediator. For you know how much we needed a mediator. Help us turn to him, I pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.